All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we'll be in verses 24 and 25 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth uh, this morning. It's this, is that success and pleasure in sin serve as merciful signs of God's judgment in the present. Let me read that again. Success and pleasure in sin, which is the key qualifier, success and pleasure in sin uh, serve as merciful signs of God's judgment uh, in the present. Now, if you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word and, uh, and, and let's pay attention with our hearts and our minds. This is Romans 1, 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we're thinking about this text, uh, I want to open with a question, and this is, this is very important. This question serves as essentially the spine, the, the most important aspect of how you will understand this sermon. It's what impact does, you, does how you feel about something have on whether you believe it's true and good? Now, this is something you really need to think about. You're not going to be able to do it right now. Otherwise, uh, I will be talking to no one for the next 27 or so minutes. But you need to take time to really think this through. Because our feelings are very powerful. Now, let me make a qualification that's very important. I did not just say that our feelings are unimportant. What I am going to argue is that they cannot serve as primary. They are secondary. When they are in phase with what is true and good about God, then that is a wonderful gift. When they are out of phase, they actually serve as a beautiful warning from God who is merciful to allow us to see and know and have a plumb line. Now, many of you, like me, if you're honest, you treat uh, most of life as simple math. You basically say, well, if I'm successful and it feels good, then that makes it good and true. That's often how we arbitrate or decide whether or not something is true and good. And you may say, well, I think I'm better than that. <laughs> well, you just exemplified pride and soon will come your fall. And that is God's grace to you. Don't forget that. And oftentimes, consider the opposite. If there is suffering, if there is pain, then we consider, I must have done something wrong. Think about your first reaction when something bad happens to you. Which way do you turn? Oftentimes you say, I must have done something wrong. God must be mad at me. This must be some sort of justification for something I did bad earlier in life, right? Think about how oftentimes even we as parents, when we become grandparents and our grandchildren are bad, behaved, we say, you're getting what you deserve because you were a bad child. As if anyone is good, right? It's bad theology, actually, but we say these kind of things all the time. And so it's important that we recognize that this simple math is not biblical economy. You understand? Now, let me make my point through Jesus. Look at Jesus's life. Did everything that he did, and he, remember, he was perfect. That means that everything that he did was right and true according to God's word and God's standard. Remember that he is the righteousness of God 
the holiness of God incarnate? Did everything he do produce success and pleasure? Yes or no? Help me out. Yes or no? I know you're out there. No. Now, that's very important. So if the perfect human, the one who actually lived God's law perfectly, did not experience success and pleasure with everything he did in this fallen world, then what is the likelihood that that should be your measure? Did he experience suffering and displeasure? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. At the tomb of Lazarus, we've talked about this before, no, he bellowed at death even knowing that Lazarus was going to walk out of that tomb. Why? Because he knew this was not yet the end and it was not yet for everyone to be resurrected and resurrected for eternity. He grieved over Jerusalem. The ones who would crucify him, remember, he didn't just grieve, he wept. Gethsemane, he begged the Lord, if there be any other way, Lord, Remember, the angels had to minister to him as he sweat drops of blood in agony before he was ever pierced. He was pierced by what he knew was coming. So, whose image are we being formed into now? Christ's image. So what does that mean is now the economy by which we should expect in life? Well, there will be some success and pleasure. There will be some suffering and sorrow and displeasure. The measure is whether or not it is according to the character of the creator, the character of God, the character of Jesus, whether or not it evidences the fruit of the spirit. We've, so you have some ways in which you can come to this. And so it's very important that we measure things rightly. So success, sometimes you need to question Sometimes pleasure needs to be questioned, not, not in a cynical, postmodern, deconstructionist way, but it should be that you say, God, is this your hand? Let me give you an example. How many of you, if you were offered a job that paid more money that could transform your debt circumstance tomorrow, but it required you to no longer be able to be in worship or community, how many of you would take it and say it was God's favor? without even thinking about it. Now you may say, well, Cameron, come on now. Well, I, I've been in that position. Now, now you may say, well, I thought, you, I thought you work on Sunday. Like, you don't have a problem with it. Just, that's not what I'm talking about. This was back when I was a physical therapist and had a chance to transform the financial future of my family with my own hands and chose not to. And God proceeded to bless and take care of that debt over time. Now, did I just, did Cameron just go name it and claim it? No, I did not, because it doesn't always work like that. It didn't work, and what I gave you was the thumbnail sketch. It occurred over a much longer period than I would have preferred. But does God bless the obedience of his people with his presence, not just material things, but his presence, which is actually what we should be most concerned with? Yes, he does. Which is why if we don't understand what's happening here to the Gentiles, that essentially they are being driven from the presence of God, that if we don't value that being present with God is, one of the, the, is the greatest blessing we can have, then we don't get any of this. 
And if you think that you would prefer to know what to think biblically, the simple math, just tell me the answers versus you being formed in how you think biblically, then this, this is where discipleship stands or falls. And the what to think is what leads to division, right? How many of you have moralized positions, political, uh, medical, scientific, and otherwise, you've moralized them because you say, but Cameron, there's got to be a right answer. There is. It's Jesus. Now, did I just say don't use your brains? Don't, don't think things through? No, that's not what I just said. But you should have a lens that's biblical first, primarily and only, actually. Because sometimes, and Jesus is an example of this, sometimes suffering the wrong answer, sometimes suffering the people who are wrong is your calling. This is Paul. This is Jesus. This is all who come in the name of Jesus. And it's not always one-to-one. That's why it's not simple math. So it's very, very important that we have that understanding as we're stepping into this text that what Paul has already done, he drew the plumb line when he talked about the righteousness of God in God's gospel that becomes Jesus' gospel, who is, as we read, right? It was in our assurance of pardon. What is Jesus? He is the manifested righteousness of God that is now imputed to us to deal with in humility, not in arrogance. So it's very important that we have this understanding as we step into this. And remember from last week, Matt's sermon, uh, this this quote from Thomas Aquinas will help us kind of orient and remember what Matt shared with us through God's word. He says, God's glory or brilliance is the principle of every nature and form. Consequently, when the Gentiles exchanged God's glory for images, listen to this, because this is very important because this is where a lot of us are guilty. They put the first being in the last place. But, and this is also important, what is more abominable, man exchanged God's glory not only for man, who is made in the image of God, but even for the things inferior to man. Remember, they made uh, 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 idols out of the beasts and the crawling things and worshipped that, that doesn't bear directly the image of God in the unique way that we do, according to Psalm 8 and Christ himself in Hebrews 2, in whose image we're being transformed. So that is a critical context as we step into this text to understand what God's doing when he is turning us over. So essentially, what he is doing, and this is Tim Keller's observation, what he's doing here as he's talking to the Gentiles, consider he's talking to the younger brother, the prodigal son, who was turned over and given all his inheritance at once, and what did he do? He choked on it. And the Jews, or the older brother, who are angry about the prodigal returning and the party being thrown. So that's an important way for us to keep this in view. He's talking about that prodigal process and what God in his sovereignty is doing in and through that, which, as we get toward the end of the sermon, I'm going to argue is great news for many of us who will go through it and who watch others go through it. Now, let's turn back to the text and see how too much of a good thing isn't good. 
Therefore, now that therefore is therefore because they had suppressed the truth of God, you remember. They had suppressed it and formed it into a bestial image. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And so what he's saying here is God turned them over to what they thought they wanted. It was their choice to suppress the truth. And so God said, well, I'm going to let you follow that all the way down. It's kind of like, the, if you remember from the Willy Wonka factory, when the young man is, has got access to all that goodness. Remember what happened to him? He overindulged and, and, and it didn't go well. We are very dissimilar. We think it's our idea, but it's not. It was your idea to get yourself into that circumstance in the first place because you thought that what is good and true is what you are successful at and is pleasing. But that was the measure. And they thought the same thing, right? And so they were, were worshiping beasts. And so what's interesting about this, when we get to the, the, the subject of homosexuality next week, it's very important that we recognize that what Paul is doing is masterful. Masterful in, uh, and he's actually the one playing, if there's anybody who can play, four-dimensional chess. Of the ones who've been accused, I ain't seen it thus far. But he's actually playing four-dimensional chess because he's working at multiple angles to bring them to an understanding of God, to bring them to a place of hope, actually, not destroy them. This is not intended to be a destructive circumstance. And so what he's telling them is essentially, okay, if you want to worship the beast, then the only way that that's going to be justified and make any sense at all is if you do things that not even a beast would do. And so therefore, they very clearly are higher than you. And maybe the scales will drop. Because the intent here is not to turn them over to destruction. How do I know that? Well, who's in the audience? Gentiles. He's describing who they were without Jesus. These Gentiles had been without Jesus. They had gone this way. And so sitting in that audience would have been people who had been redeemed out of all of these wretched things. The other thing that he's doing, and one of the reasons that he picks and we'll see this more next week, the things that he picks about what they did with their bodies is because it would have caused the Jews to loosen up a little bit. And they would have said, oh yeah, here we go. Because Jews in particular hated this kind of thing because of the purity laws, because of Levitical laws. So what he's doing is setting them up because again, they're, they're thinking, all right, he's fixing to actually show the division is good and true and we are the ones masterfully in chapter two, which we'll get to in a few weeks. He spins and says, and so are some of you. You've done the same thing and you had the law. Now he's spinning on them and saying, you, it's even worse for you. But notice what he does when he gets to chapter three. He brings the ground to level for everybody. And says, listen, this is just what everybody is without Jesus. So we can no longer judge each other based on the sins we've committed. Now, why is that something we need to hear? Well, some of you are afraid to be known. Some of you are afraid to be in community where you could be known because you are ashamed of who you really are and what you've done outside of Jesus. 
You were afraid that if anybody knew what you really thought and some of the things that you've done, we would run you on a rail right out of this church. We would suggest to you a number of other really nice churches in town where you might could find purchase. And then some of you are are angry that people have done these kind of things and you think they, they don't deserve a place in our church. This kind of thing is not a tension that you want to stand in. It's not a paradox that you want to wrestle with. You want clear lines drawn. What's right? How, like, what am I supposed to think about this issue biblically? Not how to think biblically and wrestle in the tension and the paradox recognizing that no single one of us ought to be the one who has the exact say on these things. It is God who has that say. And we need those of you who are holding the line on issues of fidelity to Scripture and those kinds of things. We need you to ask those questions, but we need you to ask them with humility and not arrogance. We need those of you who really care about other people and just circumstances. We need you to continue to challenge the rest of us to care what's happening for the life of the world because it mattered to Jesus and it matters to God. But we don't all have to do the exact same thing. This is the creativeness of the giftedness of God, right? As a church, we should all be using our gifts but it won't look the exact same. Please don't moralize or hierarchalize your gift over someone else's. You do know that I am absolutely wasting my time up here. If, if you are not hospitable, you know I am wasting my time up here if you are out drawing sharp lines and running people off who need to hear the gospel. I am playing but my part, which is not the whole. And so we need to be a people who are growing in how to think, is that easy? No, trust me. I, I'm pretty convinced, arrogantly, that I could do what Stephen Furtick does and be rich. I am pretty convinced, but my soul would wither and it would destroy me. I would rather take the long arc to see generations, not just you, formed in the image of Christ long after we are gone. I would much rather you be able to discern these kinds of things because of the hope that is actually within these words that sound so harsh to our modern ears. Again, Paul's not calling them out to destroy them. He's just reminding them, don't forget where you came from and how far the Lord has brought you, even though he turns you over to keep the score in your own bodies, amongst yourselves, to dehumanize each other and yourselves. Look at what he has done in redeeming you in Christ. Now, why is this in any way, shape, or form good news for us? Well, Parents, how many of you, parents, this is rhetorical, please don't answer. How many of you have a prodigal child or children? So what's the good news here for you? Well, 
as you see them going further and further and further into their dehumanizing choices, you ought to, instead of what I have done and many of the rest of us have done as parents, despairing and wondering, what have I done wrong that you would take my child or not redeem my child or not bring my child out of this darkness according to my timetable? Instead of that being your prayer, which is perfectly honest, don't get me wrong, pray with hope, knowing that the Lord is at work, that the Lord is doing something that may actually bring that child back and you want to be prepared to receive and throw the party. But too often we function as hopeless people because we want it to be easy. And yes, it is a good desire to not want our children to suffer, but what if that desire keeps them from coming to Christ? What if that desire keeps them from looking anything like Jesus and makes them hell-bound, but nice for you at Thanksgiving and Christmas? We desire too little. How about for those of you who have, maybe, a marriage that feels like it's been put in a blender? And you find yourself or the other person seems to be turning themselves over to some things that you don't see any way back. Again, I say to you, instead of praying and asking, what have I done wrong? Or how can I be happy? Pray with hope. That the Lord somehow is at work in that. Call on the power of the Spirit that is at work in that process. Because, again, yes, it may still end. No, it may not go the way you think. But there's something more devastating that happens to you either way it goes if you don't have hope because you begin to question the goodness of God, which is what Paul is trying to get them to see they should not do, which is why he spent so much time at the beginning of the letter talking about the goodness of God, and he's going to continue to do so all throughout. Now consider one of the difficult things about Romans is they would have heard this all in one sitting, more than likely. We are inching our way two years in the making to the end of chapter 16. Now some of that is actually what makes it hard for us to keep things in context and we pull it out. So I would say to you on a periodic basis, it might not be a bad idea for you to take the time and just just sit down and read the whole letter. In one city. And do that periodically because new things will come out to you. Keep in view his original words of grace and peace to you. These are words of grace and peace as hard as they sound. Because, and notice, Paul can't contain himself when he says, You gave yourself up for a lie. You worship beasts so that it's destroying your humanity. But when he says, And then, rather than the creator, he can't contain himself. He says, who is blessed forever? And then he says this word, amen. Now, what do you think was supposed to happen when that was read in the mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles? Let's try it. I'm going to read it again. Just take a shot. I know you're wondering. It's not hard. It's just the repetition of a word, actually. I bet you know which one. The creator who is blessed forever, amen. Let's try that again. That was weak. 
And I'm not doing this, I'm not practicing for Stephen Furtick. I know he does this kind of thing. But it's important for us to be able to say it because it meant something to them. Remember, he's talking to the redeemed out of this. Which for the Jews sitting around wondering, how, how could God redeem a people so unclean? Which is why in two he's going to say, because you are. Let's try it again. The creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that means something to us. That gives us hope for the marriage that is crumbling, for the family member who's gone prodigal and astray, and you're thinking, they ain't ever coming back. Well, they may not. But what will it cost you to pray, to join in the work that God is clearly doing by turning them over? What would it cost you to join that work in hope versus what's it going to cost you if you don't? Now, there ain't a person in this room I guarantee you, I'll, I'll match it dollar for dollar, that hates being disappointed and feeling like I have put myself on a limb and am sawing it off behind me. No one hates that more than I do. It's been a year in counseling dealing with it. So this is actually insanely hard for me as I have circumstances, plural, for which I need to be practicing this. So I am numbered among you, and I need your help to be praying for me to honor the same thing. But there's a part of me that as I prepared for this sermon, it was stoked within me. What a good gift this could be. Am I concerned about looking like a fool in this world? Clearly not, <laughs> right? If I, if I was worried about it, I'd have gotten those nice hair plugs and transplants and tried to fix this thing up. But that ain't what I did. Ain't what I'm doing. So we need to not be ashamed of the gospel that is true beautifully here. In these words, which causes Paul to praise, and he calls for them to do the same. Listen to what Tim Keller has to say about this passage. He says, this is the wrath of God to give us what we want too much. To give us what we want too much. Now, this causes a great tension, doesn't it? Psalm 10, if you were to read it, evidences that sinners boast when they are successful and it's pleasurable and things are going well. You should read it and see how they're caricaturized. Psalm 73 evidences the psalmist in great agony, wondering why do the wicked prosper? So church, why? Why do they prosper? So they might come home again. So they could see the distinction. You may say, well, that's the stupidest idea I think I've ever heard of. But you've experienced it, I bet. I have. Where your sin was great for a, a little while. And you dove more and more into it. And you couldn't, it felt like gravity. You couldn't pull yourself out. And suddenly you began, it was too much of a good thing. You began to glut on it. And it was no longer good. It was no longer pleasurable like you thought. It was just too much. And either you went further into it, and we've seen this happen to people, have we not? They change. They become something less than human in the process. Or they become so sick of their circumstances that they begin to look for the answer in Christ. 
And so praise be to God that he loves us this much, that as a parent, he is not concerned with us being bubble-wrapped and never hurt. He goes on. To give us over to the pursuit of things we have put in place of him. The worst thing God can do to a human being in the present, which that's important, is to let them reach their idolatrous goals. His judgment is to give us over to the destructive power of idolatry and of evil. The great tragedy is that we choose this for ourselves. God allows us to walk through the door we have chosen. But remember who he's talking to. People who have come back through Christ, the forgiving door. Who have found entrance in the presence of God because of who Christ is. Who the Spirit has brought back. And that's why we as a people ought pray in great hope for those who've gone astray. So how has God turned you over to the consequences of your sin? See, it's not all about pleasure and success. For some of you, it's habit now. It's the way you talk to one another. It's the way you treat each other. It's the arrogance with which you think you can malign another image bearer and you can justify it, regardless of what they're doing. It's the way that we arrogantly oftentimes think that we know what's best and right without a degree in epidemiology or virology or anything else. It's the way in which we so often find ourselves angry and frustrated and it begins to just take over and we can find pleasure in nothing. I would say to you, church, that is God's gracious warning to you that you are drifting far from him and you don't look like Jesus at all. You may say, but yeah, he flipped tables, right? Fashioned bullwhip. Is that what you're... Is that what you call yourself online, bullwhip 357? <laughs> Don't take my handle. I'm saving it for when, I, when all this is done, I just go crazy. But it's important that you see that that turning over is gracious warning. And so how would you know? How, how do you know that's what's happening? Well, look at your life. Take your life and compare it to the fruit of the Spirit. Are you bearing fruits in repentance? Do you get that pride is the most noxious thing to the Lord our God? And when it shows up in you, mortify it in Christ. When it shows up in your children, be even more afraid than them running off and getting a neck tattoo that says no regrets. <laughs> and what was the result when God turned you over? Did you? Well, you found your way here. Praise be to God. That doesn't mean everything, but it means something. And then what does this teach us about the role of our, our, that our feelings should play in determining what's true and honors the Lord? Our feelings are not the plumb line. And see, this is where it's devastating if you don't know Scripture. If you don't have some things stored up in your heart, if you aren't regularly reflecting on those things. If you aren't judging you, someone else will be happy to. Remember Paul when he said, I don't need y'all to judge me. I put myself through that process on a regular basis. And it should be done in hope because you are hopefully redeemed. You get to stand in the presence of God at peace. 
And so let us be a people who are reflective, who are growing in how to think biblically, so that when someone does confront us with something that is scriptural, and I wish that that would be true of y'all even to me, when you see me being unbiblical, that you would have the courage to love me enough to not let me go so far as to have to be turned over in full. This is where we should love each other a whole lot better than we do. Now, I'm not talking about uh, peccadillos. I'm not talking about just like prosecuting everything. I'm talking about the real stuff. I had an elder one time, not at this church, confront me about the way I was treating my nine-year-old son. I was harsh with Devin. Devin was at that age where when he would tell a joke, and if it worked, he'd tell it 97 more times in a row. Just seeking like, all right, <laughs> one more time, y'all. Let's try it again. Three, two, one from the top, right? And so, and so I, I just told, I was like, man, dude, get, get out of here. Like, get out of here. And Tim, uh, uh, who was a close friend of mine with grief, said, Cameron, you, you can't talk to your son like that. It's the greatest gift anyone has ever given me as a parent. But how often would we buck and be like, oh, huh. You going to talk to me about my child? You want to talk to me about my parent? You in my house. You crazy? You just ate my food, drank my drink? Get out. Now, maybe you're not as trailer park as I am. But, and I didn't do that, by the way. I was grieved because the spirit was at work. We need to, in hospitality, love each other this way. And, like I said, reflect for ourselves. So, what does Romans 1, 24 and 25 teach us? What teaches us that success and pleasure and sin serve as merciful signs of God's judgment in the present. The reason for that word in the present is that means you got time to come home, to make it right. When judgment falls at the end of time, the beginning of eternity proper, there's no more coming home. This is why it's merciful. And praise be to God that he is this Merciful. We should be able to hear a text that says these hard things and find hope in God. This is how you begin to think biblically. All of the Bible points to hope. Why? Because you're reading it alive. And it gives you the opportunity to grow. We need to be a people who are more grateful for that fact. So would you join me, church, in becoming more hopeful and pushing back against the darkness, even as we see people we love and people we care about and people in our spheres of influence being turned over, would you more readily run to the throne of grace to lift up your voice and hope for that person because you see not just Satan is at work. No, God who is far more powerful, who has defeated past tense and eternally the powers, principalities and powers of darkness, even though they rage for a little bit longer. How long? I don't know but the fight's over. So let us be a people who lift our voices in hope when we see those kinds of things and help each other when we're struggling to have hope, that we would remind each other of how true and beautiful the gospel really is, for which we should not be ashamed. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> thank you that you love us, and you love us so much that you don't protect us from ourselves. That you love us so much that you're willing to expose our arrogance and our pride. That you would say to us, if you want to worship beasts, I'm going I'm to drive you to become less than beasts. So that maybe you would recognize your folly. How arrogant and foolish this really is. God, would you help us as your people be a people who are able to 
recognize when we ourselves are sliding to being turned over, that we would learn how to think biblically, not just what to think. Help us not do simple math, but biblical economy. God, would you help us to recognize the beauty and the depth of the gospel so that when we pray, we pray with a deep and profound hope that would cause even those around us to ask for the reason of that hope in us so that we could better love our friends and neighbors and our spheres of influence. God, help us to grow, to look more like Jesus, to be a people who are very uh, um, quick to come boldly before the throne to receive what we need in times of trouble. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.